Well, good morning once again. I invite you at this time to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This morning we're looking at um, part 4 of a series where we've been walking through this chapter. Lord willing, we'll maybe get through the end of it today. We're looking at verses uh, 13 through 18. Uh, the title of this series is The New Versus the Old. This is the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant. This is part four, and we're looking at verses 13 through 18. I'm going to go ahead and read beginning in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which says this, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the consequence of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is brought to an end in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. And whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We're, we're looking at a section uh, where the, the theme of this section is that the veil is removed. And as I was thinking about this passage... Um, I kind of was reminded of being in a, um, growing up in the church, uh, and some of you heard my testimony. It, 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 prior to coming to faith in Christ, uh, I was at church, but I was really not, I was kind of striving against church. I mean, I wasn't in, I had somewhat of a, um, an appearance of compliance, but there was a lot of rebellion going on. Uh, one, there are a few stories that I, I tell from time to time that, that typify this. One of them was when I was about 12 years old, when I was in fifth grade, I think, and uh, I had a Sunday school teacher who happened to have extremely hairy arms, I mean, unusually hairy arms. And being an inquisitive young kid as I was, I wondered what it would be like if I twisted his arm hair and so during the lesson, I leaned over, I was sitting next to him, and I twisted his arm hair, at which point he said, Brian, please go stand outside the door. And so I went outside the door, and I grew up in Seal Beach, which if you've been to Seal Beach, it's a, it's a small town, 20,000 people, it has a main street, three blocks uh, straight down to a pier, and then it has a, um, uh, there's a church just off of Main Street, a block from the ocean, that was our church. And uh, as I'm standing on this summer day outside the door, outside the building, People are walking by, going to the beach, looking at me as though I were somebody who was being disciplined. And I didn't like the fact that they looked at me that way. And so I um, decided to walk home. I said, I'll walk to church. I'll just walk home, be home before my parents. Nobody will have to know about this. As I'm walking about the, down the church uh, lawn, he comes out uh, looking for me and he says, hey, Brian, come back. You know. So I started running, running the opposite direction. And <laughs> I didn't head towards my house. I headed down towards the beach. I'm running in between people at the, at the, at the you know, towards the pier. And he's chasing after me. He's got his Sunday school shoes on. And he, gra- he grabs me. I, never, I remember he grabbed me by the arm. Something, you know, today. Well, anyway, so uh, <laughs> grabbed me by the arm and uh, kind of lifted me up against a tree and then started pulling me back to the church. And he's taking a shortcut through an alley. Not, not far from where Cold Stone ice cream is right now. And he starts to pull me through that alley. I decided to yell, help, I don't know this man, help, I don't know this man. And uh, you'll be comforted to know that even in the 1980s, uh, people responded to that kind of thing very rapidly, and, and they uh, surrounded us, and, uh, and uh, Denny Buell, who was the head of the Kids Baseball Association, said, what are you doing with that kid? And he says, I'm taking him to church. And I remember Denny said, sounds like you got a good idea, but it looks like you're going about it the wrong way. And then and about 30 people surrounded us. The police showed up, and they separated us. And so I confessed, okay, he's my Sunday school teacher. They wanted to verify my story. So they put me in the back of a black and white, 
and they drove around the corner to the church, and they parked right in front of the church doors. Now, the church doors are bursting in my mind. They're about to open. Everybody's going to come out, see me in the back. Meanwhile, two uniformed officers are going through every Sunday school room looking for my parents to verify that I was actually their son and that they knew where I was and everything was good. I don't know what's happening to my Sunday school teacher, uh, but... Um, uh, uh, I, I was started bargaining with God. I'm praying, you know, get me out of this situation. I don't remember exactly what it said, but it might have been something like, listen, I'll be a missionary in Africa if you get me out of this situation. Um, and eventually I survived that. That's just one of many stories kind of growing up, being kind of a church brat. In high school, it got a little bit more bold. And, but all the time, people are trying to keep me in church, keep me in church until one day, Somebody who worked with the youth group said to me, you know, I think it'd be better for you to leave church altogether. And I said, why is that? He said, because it's obvious you have a foot in the world and a foot in the church. And it's obvious that, uh, you know, the Bible talks about accountability for everything that you hear. The more you hear about the truth and still reject it, the more uh, harsher the judgment will be for you. So it'd be to your benefit to leave and not hear this. He's trying to communicate to me in a loving way that somehow this will benefit me to get rid of the church, to jettison the church. And, and it, it kind of made sense. And so I was 16 years old, and I said, I'm going to leave the church altogether. He's, nobody's ever tried to talk me out of the church, but he, he's got a good point. But I, I had, the thought occurred to me, I think that I had some genuine, a genuine relationship with Christ prior to that. Even though I was not growing. I was not being sanctified. I was not really pursuing Christ or Christ-likeness. I, I, I felt like I really had given my life to Him, and I was just being disobedient. So I decided before I jettisoned the church altogether, I am going to try and live 110% for Jesus Christ. I'm going to be more involved in Bible reading um, and that year was my last year of high school. I was turned 17 in my senior high school. My language changed. My friends changed. My desires changed. There were all kinds of changes that took place that year Till the, the time when I graduated. I wanted to be involved in missionary work. I wanted to go out and be involved in evangelism. And I, I ended up spending three years working for a short-term missions agency helping lead short-term mission trips. And for me there was this big change that took place at that point in my life. And it was as though the scales fell off my eyes. It was as though the veil had been lifted. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the veil being lifted. And in order to understand this and really get a good grasp of what this passage is really talking about, we have to first go back and read from Exodus chapter uh, 20, 34 verses 29 through 35. Um, Exodus 34 verses 29 through 35. This is the story of when Moses came down the second time from Mount Sinai uh, with the, the Ten Commandments to see the people of Israel. The first time he came down, remember they were worshiping a golden calf and God had uh, uh, rebuked them and punished them and disciplined them. And uh, now in Exodus 34, verse 29, it says, Now it happened when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was speaking with him, that is Yahweh. Then Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them, and afterward all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them everything that Yahweh had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Then Moses finished speaking with them and put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out, and then he would come out to speak to the sons of Israel what had been commanded. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that skin of Moses' face, that the skin of Moses' 
face shone. So Moses would return the veil over his face until he went to speak to him. And in this chapter of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, we've been walking through this, and we have seen six key distinctions of New Covenant ministry that should help you to see how much greater New Covenant ministry is than Old Covenant ministry. And I'll just review these quickly. The first distinction is that New Covenant ministry has faithful ministers. Verse 1, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? He's basically saying, hey, you know I'm faithful. I don't need to introduce myself to you again. There, the background here a little bit is there were these false teachers, the Judaizers that were influencing the church in Corinth and saying, well, where are Paul's letters of credentials? And he's saying, you know me. He had spent a year and a half with them, shepherding them. Many of them had come to faith in Christ, which leads us to the second key distinction, and that is new covenant ministry transforms lives. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, you are our letter, having been written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, ministered to by us. Paul reminds them that uh, if you want a letter of, of commendation or a letter of introduction, take a look at yourselves. Everybody knows that your life has changed, that you're different, that you've been transformed, that you're no longer lying about your Sunday school teachers, that, you, that you, uh, you know, you're no longer living like Corinthians. And so there's this uh, transformation that takes place in verses 2 and 3. We also see a third key distinction that, of New Covenant ministry, that it provides confidence 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4, and such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. Verse 12 as well speaks of this confidence. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but one of the issues, one of the, another one of the complaints from the false teachers against Paul was that he's an un unimpressive guy, but he speaks too boldly. He speaks too authoritatively for who he is. But it, it's the ministry. Paul says, it's not from me. It's from, I have confidence in Christ, in the gospel, in the new covenant. And so he, um, he, he has this confidence. He explains that in verses four through six, first part of verse six, and then in verse 12. But there is a fourth distinction of New Covenant ministry. It gives life. Take a look at the end of verse 6. It says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this is why this was such an important issue for the Apostle Paul. He didn't need to defend himself, but he needed to defend the gospel because if you add something to the gospel and say that you must become a Jew first in order to be saved, you must, now that you're a Christian and these people were following him around, these Judaizers, these false teachers were following Paul around, going to cities he'd already been to where he'd preached the gospel, where people come to faith in Christ, they believed in Christ alone for salvation. And then they said, yeah, Paul was right that Christ is the Messiah, but he forgot to mention that you also need to follow the Mosaic law and you need to be involved in the sacrificial system. You need to go to the feasts in Jerusalem. You need to actually be involved with uh, circumcision for the men and you need to have um, uh, dietary restrictions and, and become Jewish. You need to be a proselyte if you're going to be saved because prior to the cross, prior to salvation, Israel was the light unto the world. Anybody who wanted to become right with God proselytized, a Gentile could become a Jew. And uh, there was some confusion early in the church, which had already been cleared up in Acts chapter 15. But these false teachers, even though they probably knew about the apostles and their decision that you did not need to become a Jew if you were a Christian, they went ahead anyways and believed that, so they were going and teaching that to all the Gentiles. And it's a common reoccurring theme we find in many books of the New Testament that you have to speak out against these Judaizers. And so uh, it was a life and death issue because if you add a work to salvation, it's a different gospel and it brings death because you're trusting in your own works for salvation. You're not trusting in Christ. And this is why it was so important. That's why he could say the spirit gives life, but the letter, that is the law, kills or legalism kills. And then fifthly, 
we see that the new covenant ministry has glory. And this is what we talked about last week in verses 7 through 11. It says in verse 7, But if the ministry of death and letters, having been engraved on stones, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face, which was being brought to an end, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be even more in glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had been glorious in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which was being brought to an end was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Ten times the word glory is found in those verses. And the whole theme is that the old covenant did have glory. There was a purpose for it. And it's evidenced by the glory that's shown on Moses' face. But that's nothing compared to the glory that comes with Christ. And the new covenant, that is, that God will change you from the inside and he'll forgive your sins. That covenant that God made with Israel, but which benefits you and I today, that covenant involving a future Messiah, a perfect sacrifice, that covenant has far more glory that outweighs any glory that Moses had. And that was the, the, really the gist and the, the focus of verses 7 through 11. We're coming now to verses 13 through 18, because verse 12, again, was speaking about boldness. And 13 through 18 is really the sixth distinction in our chapter here of a new covenant ministry. And the sixth distinction is the new covenant ministry removes the veil. It removes the veil. And and there's a stark contrast surrounding the veil. You can take this section, six verses, verses 13 through 18, divide it in half. Verses 13 through 15 talk about the old covenant and the veil. Verses 16 through 18 talk about the new covenant and the veil. So in these last six verses, again, he's contrasting the old with the new. And let's begin by reading just verses 13 through 14. We are going to jump around a little bit because I really want us to have a great understanding of this passage, because I think the clearer understanding we have this passage, the more motivated we will be to apply it to our lives and to, to seek that transformation without the veil. And so look at verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 3 once again. He says, And are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the consequence of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is brought to an end in Christ. Now remember, verse 13 contrasts the confidence in verse 12. Paul spoke about verse 12, Therefore, having such hope, we use boldness in our speech. As I mentioned before, uh, these false teachers had attacked Paul. It's clear from 2 Corinthians that there was something going on with Paul's personality and his boldness in his speech. So let me just refresh your memory. We've talked about this before, but 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10 says this, for they say, these are the false teachers, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is weak and his words contemptible. So one of the criticisms they had against Paul was that he seems to speak so boldly to you, Corinthians, yet he's an unimpressive person, and his words really aren't very powerful, is he? normally when he speaks. And Paul doesn't try to defend himself. I love it. I love it because sometimes the best offense is no defense. You just, hey, you think I'm unintelligent, weak? I am. I have nothing but Christ. I, I take that as a compliment that you point out my weaknesses. I have many more. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 5. He says this, For I consider myself in no way inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now, apostles means sent ones. He could be talking about the 12 apostles, the 12, but I think he's, he's speaking sarcastically here, speaking about these most eminent false teachers. I think that's what's going on here. When we get to that chapter, we'll go through the reasons why uh, I think that. But, but uh, either way, his point is, 
that he's not inferior to anyone else, any other one else. And then he says, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 11, but even if I am unskilled in word, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things. So he says, hey, even if they say, I'm not very good with words, even if that's true, I have a knowledge. And the knowledge is about Christ, and that's what motivated him, and that's what gave him this boldness. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, we, we've, we've talked about his confidence in verses 4 and 5, and now he contrasts that boldness, which he brings up again in verse 12. He says, we use great boldness in our speech, we being himself and the other preachers of the new covenant which is what he's talking about in this whole chapter. Beginning of verse 13, not only do we use great boldness, but conversely, we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face. There's something about Moses with a veil over his face that was the opposite of the boldness that Paul had and the gospel preachers. He's contrasting those two. Moses did not have the same confidence in his speech that Paul was able to have because Moses was revealing the Mosaic law. He was revealing an old covenant. It was designed, why, why, what was the old covenant designed to point towards? Christ, the Messiah, right? The need for a Messiah, the need for a perfect sacrifice. But that was not clear to Moses as it was to Paul. Paul had a much clearer picture knowing who Christ was. Moses could not speak confidently about when that future fulfillment of the law would happen or how it would happen or who would provide ultimate atonement. Moses veiled his face so that the glory associated with the old covenant would not force the Israelites to look away from him but he could not speak boldly like Paul. Paul could speak boldly about the new covenant because he knew who the Messiah was. He knew how and when atonement had been accomplished, and he knew a greater glory which comes and the way of salvation, and he could explain it with boldness. Whereas Moses could simply say, this is what the law says, this is what you must do. Now, I want to talk more about verse 13, but before I do that, I want to... I want to jump into verse 14. There's something fascinating at the end of verse 14. If you don't have your Bibles open, this is going to be difficult for you this morning because I, I kind of want to just tear this apart a little bit and see if it can't help us to understand this section better. So take a look at the end of verse 14 because he says, the veil remains unlifted because it is brought to an end in Christ. That is an important phrase to understand this section. It is brought to an end in Christ. What is it? The Old Covenant. Okay, generally the, the Old Covenant would come to an end, but what is, he, what is he talking about? What is mentioned six times? Six times in this passage, the word veil is mentioned. Four times it's mentioned veil. Uh, twice it's mentioned unveiled. One time that's translated as unlifted. But... In these six verses, six times the veil, it is the veil. The veil was connected to the glory. The glory was connected to the old covenant. So in seminary, you get like a third credit for that because it's, uh, you know, yes, it's, 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 it's the veil we're talking about, which was connected to, and you're like, well, I was going for the deeper meaning, which was, you know, okay, great. Okay, good. Okay, so, uh, but we have uh, the veil of Moses was brought to an end in Christ. Why was it brought to an end? And what I mean by that is why was it abolished in Christ? Why would Moses' veil be irrelevant, unnecessary? Because Christ has been revealed... Because when Christ came in, in glory, he so outshone any glory of the old covenant that there, were no further need, there was no further need for the Mosaic covenant. There was no further need for Moses' veil. 
you recall, if you were here last week, we talked about an illustration where, you know, you walk out in the desert or in the mountains and you look up and you say, wow, I can't believe how bright all the stars are and they're beautiful. And during the daytime, those stars are still there. They don't go anywhere. The stars don't come out at night. The stars stay out. You just don't see them during the day because there's a much brighter star, the sun, that so outshines any other star that you don't see it during the day. And so you look up to the sky and and you, you don't see any of the stars, but they're there. And in a similar way, when Christ came, the old covenant did have a certain glory, but Christ's light so outshines, Christ's glory so outshines those, those, the glory of the old covenant, that it's as if the old covenant had no glory, even though it did have glory, even though those, those stars are still, still shining just as bright as they were at night during the day, they're so overshadowed or outshone by the sun. And there's a play on words in verse 14. There's a word that he's been repeating in here, He says, the veil is brought to an end in Christ. And he actually uses two words for end in his passage. But the one he uses four times is this word, katargeo, katargeo. And and you know this word, right? Because ergon is the Greek word for work. And you know that because you go to work and you look for an ergonomical chair or they have ergonomical uh, keyboards. Yeah, see? Yeah. Well, I did this. Yeah, okay, so, but uh, <laughs> is it just me or are these words that you're, you're like thinking, okay, and ergo, er, ergonomics is the study of work or things that work, and so that's why they call it that. And, and so you may not have known that, but you might have talked to your boss and said, I need a better chair. I need one that's ergonomical, ones that'll help me work because I need to work. Well, this word, katargon, it's not ergon, it's argon, because when you put an alpha, like if it's amoral, it's anti or it's against it, the alpha privative, right? The alpha makes it a negative. So if ergon is work, argon is no work. It doesn't work. And kata just emphasizes that. That prefix, it just emphasizes it all the more. And so, katargeo, to abolish, to nullify, to use up, to make powerless. Now, take a look at the end of verse 14 again. I just want to show this to you. In the New American Standard, it says, it is removed in Christ. Uh, ESV, verse 14, through Christ, it is taken away. The LSB says, it is brought to an end. That is... The veil is taken away, brought to an end, removed. It's, it's, it's no longer necessary. It is unworking. It is ineffective. He uses the same word at the end of verse 13, where he says the end of what was fading away or the outcome of what was being brought to an end or the consequence of what was being brought to an end. But the problem is that word consequence or outcome or end at the, in verse 13 is, is also means end, but it's a different kind of end. And I, I'm, 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 I'm losing you, I'm sure, because I'm losing me a little bit. But, but that word is telos, and that word, we get the word telescope from it. And it means the, the, very, the far thing, the goal at the very end, bringing that closer. And so this idea, that same word is used in John 13, where it says Jesus loved them to the end to the telos, to the nth degree, to the final day, to as much as he possibly could. It's as far away as you can imagine. That's how much he loved him. But, but now, if you could translate this, that um, you see that the, uh, in verse 13, he's talking about the end of what is ending. But he's really saying the goal of what's going to be done away with the goal. So in verse 13, Paul says that Moses put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look to the goal or to the end of something that's ending. 
In other words, Moses put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from looking too intently at the glory, at the end game of the Mosaic Covenant, what it was pointing to as the Mosaic Covenant was itself being brought to an end. It was also fading. What was the goal? What should you look at when you see that the Mosaic Covenant demands perfection and you don't have it? What is the goal? Number two Sunday school answer. The number one Sunday school answer is God. Number two is Jesus. That's right. Why wouldn't? Why, would, why wouldn't he want them to see Jesus? Why would he put a veil over their face? Why shouldn't the Israelites be caught up in the glory? Why shouldn't they focus on the glory of a perfect sacrifice when they were involved with a sacrificial system that was going to end, that was fading away, that would be ending when the new covenant was put into place, when it was ratified when Christ died on the cross? Well, you could ask that question this way. Why did Moses cover his face? So we've been talking a lot about this. Why? Give me some ideas. Why did Moses cover his face? It wasn't time, okay? It wasn't time for them to learn about Christ. Yes? I think their sinfulness had a, a, had a part to play in that. I, I, I came up, I put together three reasons. Um, three reasons why um, Moses veiled his face. One is they couldn't handle it. Secondly, they couldn't understand it. And thirdly, they wouldn't have received it. So when thinking about Christ and the glory and the gospel, the first reason is they couldn't handle it. Um, <clears throat> Exodus 34.30 tells us that the Israelites were frightened at the glory shining on Moses' face. It says, Then Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. There was this fear. They couldn't handle it. <clears throat> Just like Moses couldn't handle seeing the glory from God's face, which he had asked to see his face, and God said, no, 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 I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you as I pass by, and you could see just the trail, just the end of my glory, and that's what caused his face to shine in the first place. But he, you know, because God said in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. The Israelites couldn't handle even looking at the glory that was shining from Moses' face <clears throat> partially because they were such a rebellious people. Exodus 32, 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. That word obstinate translated stiff-necked, difficult, or hard no elbows here today, uh, but, but we think about stiff-necked people. That word is used repeatedly in the book of Exodus to describe the Israelites. Listen to this. The more rebellious your heart is against Yahweh, the more difficult you will find it to look at his glory. The more rebellious your heart is against Yahweh, the more difficult you will find it to look at his glory. The Israelites were afraid when they saw the glory on Moses' face. Paul House, in his book, Old Testament Theology, says this, Though the veil conveys God's mercy to a frightened people, it also starkly demonstrates their dependency on Moses and their uneasiness with Yahweh. It emphasizes the glory of God's revelation, yet shows Israel's difficulty in obeying what God reveals. It praises Moses' relationship with God, <clears throat> but leaves unanswered questions about the people's closeness to their loving, kind Lord. So they couldn't handle it, but even if they could handle it, they couldn't understand it because Moses' veiled face, they couldn't see the glory, but... Moses didn't have all the answers. The old covenant, the Mosaic law, the sacrificial system, the Ten Commandments was designed to show you your need for Christ, but it was full of symbolism, full of, it was shadowy, and it would have been difficult for Moses to even explain 
how or what was going on. We know this because the whole idea of putting a veil over your, fa- your face, 2 Corinthians 3.13, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the consequence, that is the goal, of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. Uh, for until this very day, the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is brought to an end in Christ. It's a frightening passage that Jews today, even during Paul's day, and incidentally in our day, their, their hearts are hardened because they're blind to this. They can't really see it. The veil still remains. It's unlifted. That unliftedness shows you that there is an, an inability to understand it. Not only that, but um, just incidentally, when did Moses remove his veil? When he went to speak to God and when he spoke God's word to the people. We, we read that earlier, Exodus 34, verses 34 and 45. But whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would take off the veil <clears throat> until he came out. And then he would come out to speak to the sons of Israel <clears throat> what had been commanded. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would return the veil over his face until he went to speak to him. Now, wouldn't this be great? I mean, wouldn't this be great today if you, you really wanted to hear a preacher who's preaching the glory and every time the preacher prayed, you know, his face would, would shine and then every time he preached, you know, you couldn't look at him. You'd be like, ah, turn out the lights. Let me just write, take notes here by the shining of his face, you know? And then every preacher would walk around with a veil over their face and it'd be like, oh, hello, preacher. And you'd see this curtain, you know, and this... Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, nobody wants that. But anyways, I, I, just, I just look at that. I think we read that story and we think, wow, isn't that amazing? But the whole point of verses 7 through 11 is that's nothing compared to the glory we have in Christ. That's nothing. It far outshines it. And, and, and that brings us to a third reason why, why the Israelites would, would not need to focus on God's glory and why the veil would have to be there because they couldn't handle it, they couldn't understand it, and they wouldn't have received it because of that hardening. 2 Corinthians 3.14, their minds were hardened. There, speaking about Israel, the Israelite people, the ancient Israelite people who were with Moses, their minds were hardened. And even in Paul's day, the Jews were still hardened towards God's word. Middle of verse 14, for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Romans um, 11.25, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. This brings up a a passage that speaks about the same thing, about this hardening. In Romans 11.25, Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That partial hardening is not that the hardening itself is partial, but part of the Israel, Israeli people will be hardened. In fact, it's the majority of Jews who are hardened to the glory which is Christ. Even today, the majority of Jews reject Christ as the Messiah. It's amazing, isn't it? The only nation that God chose to bestow his covenant love on them is so confused still today by the law. It's it's a paradox. S. Lewis Johnson said this about this paradox. He said, the dullness of Jewish hearts and the blindness of a Jewish heart is one of the strangest Anomalies, sorry, 
anomalies. See an enemy. Anonymy. Anomalies of history. Think about it for a moment. As people, the Jews are one of the most brilliant in the world. As a people, they are one of the most brilliant in the world. They excel in art. They excel in science. They excel in literature. Just think of how they distinguish themselves in all walks of life. In astronomy, Sir William Herschel. In music, Mendelssohn. In philosophy, Maimonides. In archaeology, Sirius Adler. In jurisprudence, Baron Redding. In science, Albert Einstein. He goes on and on, lists many more. And then he says, when this national brilliance is brought to the Bible, which they have given us, there is a mysterious lack of understanding. Even Jewish men today in many of their most significant periodicals will acknowledge that in Israel, Judaism is largely a system of ethics, and that's all. The Jewish nation, which gave us the scriptures and the Savior, and yet their mind is dull to the scriptures, and their head is dead to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the strangest things in human history only explainable, it seems to me, by the teaching of the Word of God. And that teaching he's referring to is that God has hardened the majority of their hearts. There is a partial hardening. There has always been a remnant. There has always been and there always will be a certain number of Jews until the end of the church age. There are always certain Jews who do hear it, who repent. But it's not the majority. It hasn't been the majority. But it won't be forever. That partial hardening will not be forever because Romans 11.25 says that hardness only lasts until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When will that happen? Well, if you're a Gentile and you've been resisting repentance and turning and trusting in Christ as Lord, repent today. Because God is waiting for you to come in. And there will be a day where you no longer will have that opportunity. Romans 11.25 is clear that when that number is complete, the partial hardening will go away. And Romans 11.26 says, And so all Israel will be saved. Who is all Israel? Come on, seminarians. Who is all Israel? It's Israel. It's it's all Israel. It's all Israel that is alive after the tribulation, after the church has been removed. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the rapture happens. When the fullness comes in, God takes the church away. And we know that there are seven terrible years of tribulation. Daniel prophesies about this. We know that that the book of Revelation has chapter after chapter after chapter talking about these years of tribulation. But then all Israel, every Israelite who makes it through that tribulation, who stands, there will be mass conversion. The Jews are going to say, we missed the boat twice. We missed Jesus when he came the first time. We confused him. He said he was the Messiah. We denied it. We crucified him. The Christians said that. They said he was going to come again. We said he won't come again. He came again. We're not going to miss it a third time. Thousands of Jews will be saved after the rapture. The hardening will be gone, and the softening will begin, and the veil will be lifted, and there will be thousands upon thousands of God's people, Israel, to whom he promised the new covenant. That all, and I don't have a better answer for who all Israel is if, unless it's all Israel. Because the alternative to that is that all Israel are just the Jews who are being saved and joining the church today. And to me, that just doesn't sound like all Israel. Okay. Just let me read the new covenant. We've read it before. But before before we get back out of Romans and get back into 2 Corinthians, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Remember and note that this covenant was made to Israel during the time of Jeremiah, some 700 years before 
um, before Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh, verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they will not teach, each, uh, teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, no, Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the covenant made with Israel and yet today, though that there is a partial hardening and how sad and frightening that is for Israelites today, it is so the number of Gentiles can come in to the kingdom and share the glory that comes from Christ and be saved from their sin. You can be saved from your sin, and that's glorious. Back to 2 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Even in Paul's day, and certainly in ours, when Moses is read, most Jews who hear it are blind to its glory because a veil lies over their heart. They are stagnant in their unbelief. They're stuck in it. The vast majority of them are making no progress spiritually. The Old Covenant, just think about these three verses, verses 13, 14, and 15. The Old Covenant is associated with blindness, with hardness, and stagnation. That's the association with the Old Covenant. Why is Paul writing all this again? The false teachers who are trying to bring in the Old Covenant. And he's saying, this is what you want? Blindness, hardness, stagnant faith? Contrast that to the new covenant. We'll spend less time on this, but think about the new covenant. It's not about blindness. It's about sight, verse 16. It's not about hardening. It's about freedom, verse 17. It's not about stagnation. It's about sanctification, verse 18. Notice the sight in verse 16. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The word turns in verse 16 is used elsewhere to speak about conversion. Acts 11.21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Even the term repentance is a military means to turn and go the other direction. You are a sinner. Each one of us is born a sinner. And we don't become sinners the first time we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. I didn't have to teach my kids how to sin. It came very naturally to them. It came naturally to me. They inherited it from me. They're just like me. And I'm just like Adam. It goes all the way back because I'm born a sinner. And yet, uh, the, the, uh, that, when the veil is taken away and I see my sin and how offensive it is against the holy God and that I have no hope in this world yet to turn and repent and trust in him, I have no other option. There's nothing else. I I can't even fathom not turning because I realize that there is a spirit world out there, that God is real, that there is punishment for sin, and the wrath of God remains on me if I do not turn and repent and follow him and give my life to him. So I willingly lay down my life to him and say, take it. It's all yours. My life is yours. Do whatever you want with it. It's yours. You are my only hope. And and I'm grateful for the way that you have provided because of the new covenant where my sin, which is offensive to a holy God who will not stand in the presence of sin, where my sin can be cleansed and where I can be forgiven and where I can know peace and where I can experience the glory of a Savior. The veil is taken away. 
Why would any Corinthian believer who's already had the veil removed want to listen to the Judaizers who for some reason are trying to teach it'd be better to put the veil back on? Verse 17, we're moved here from hardening to freedom. The hardening was in verse 14, but the freedom is in verse 17. It says, verse 17, now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Remember back in 2 Corinthians 3.9, Paul had referred to the Mosaic Covenant as the ministry of condemnation because the law could only condemn you. You know, you, you talk to someone and they're like, you know, well, I've never murdered anybody, you know, so I'm good there. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah. This, this, if, if, if you are angry with your brother unjustly, you're guilty of murder because the same sin that is in the heart of somebody who pulls the trigger and takes someone else's life is in your heart when you're unjustly angry with your brother. Well, I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, the same sin that is in the heart of an adulterer, which is so offensive to God, is in your heart. Well, I've never stolen or lied. Really? We are a sinful people, and we need a Savior, and we are in bondage because of the law, but we are no longer under the law. We are free if we are in Christ because the condemnation that we deserve for breaking the law is taken out of our account and placed into Christ's account where he pays for it fully on the cross and we are free. We are free from condemnation. You say, well, if I'm free from condemnation, what keeps me from just going out and and sinning? Because you're free. Because somebody just freed you. Somebody who opens up the prison doors and says, I paid the price by, by... crucifying my son, you don't say, woohoo, let's go out and rob, kill, and pillage. You're overwhelmed by the glory, by the grace that has come upon you. And that motivates you because grace, as Titus 2.11 teaches us, teaches us to deny ungodliness. It overwhelms us with this. So we see... Verse 17, we have freedom. And notice the personal pronoun at the beginning of verse 18. But we, we all, not just Paul and his fellow gospel preachers, but the Corinthians and every believer who has turned to the Lord, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as is from the Lord, the Spirit. That word transformed, metamorpho. We get the word metamorphosis from it. It's actually the same word used in Matthew 17 to speak about the transfiguration. It's translated as transfigured. Let me read that to you. Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. The transfiguration that Paul is talking about or the transformation that Paul is talking about back in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 18, sorry, uh, 3 verse 18, is that internal change that progressively makes a believer more and more like Christ. You've gone from contrasting with stagnation to sanctification, that progressive growing and becoming more and more like Christ. Notice that the the verb transformed is in the continual tense. It it is a present, present passive indicative. That's right. What does that mean? Present tense is the continuous tense, which is why it's translated are being transformed continually. From glory to glory, there's an there's a idea of levels. From one glory to the next level of glory, to the next level of glory, to the next level. You are being transformed. And the idea that it's passive, 
means that someone, not you, is doing the transforming. Remember passive verbs? Johnny hit the ball. That's active. Johnny was hit by the ball. That's passive. You are being transformed. You're not transforming yourself. So what do you do? What are you responsible to do in order to be transformed? Do you see it in the text in verse 18? Do you see the word? It's in the middle voice. What's the middle voice? The passive voice, something happens to you. The active voice, you're doing it. The middle voice, there's involvement on your part. You are involved in this. And the verb or verbal, it's the participle here, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Present, middle, participle. Present and participle shows continuous action. That's why you're beholding. Mirrors in those days were not glass. They were polished metal. You couldn't see everything perfectly, but you could see them much better than with, without, than anything else. And even though it was somewhat of a dim mirror, you could see. You could see the glory of the Lord. You can see it in Christ, and it far outshines any glory that Moses had. And the fact that you're participating in it tells us this. You want to grow in the Lord? You want to be sanctified? You want to be made more mature in your faith? You want to have victory over sin and become more and more like Christ? We know that you're free, that is, that sin shall not have dominion over you, Romans chapter 6. But how do you grow and become more mature? Well, beholding the glory of the Lord. Where do we see Christ? In his word. Romans 12 teaches us this, verses 1 and 2. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So now we have a greater appreciation for what John was saying even at the beginning of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have eight minutes left. I've thrown a lot out there. I, 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 was, I was a little nervous coming here today because I I didn't know what to do other than talk about participles. And I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand this myself. I wanted to explain as best as I could. But what questions do you have? What can I clear up before we go? Yeah, Justin. Yeah, Moses' face was shining because that old covenant had a certain glory that was associated with. It was, it was not a bad thing. I don't, I don't want you to think, oh, the Mosaic law was terrible. It, it revealed God's character. He is holy and he demands holiness, but was not to vented, intended to be forever because it was intended to be both civil and ceremonial in the sense that it would be temporary. Civilly, it separated them from other nations. And ceremonially, it showed them the need for sacrifice. And it was designed to show them that even the sacrifices they were making were actually uh, uh, not sufficient enough. They needed a greater sacrifice. So we see those purposes behind it. But it had a certain glory with it. And Paul's emphasizing that to say that He's not saying that it wasn't glorious. And these Judaizers had something that there was a glory of the old covenant, but they missed it because the greater glory has come and there's no need for that. So it's abolished. It's come to an end. And, uh, and, And that was hard for many Jews to hear in the first century because for Thousands of years, their people had been following Yahweh, and now the new covenant had come, and, and they didn't quite understand that. Any good question? Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, so when I first came to this passage, I'm like, which veil are we talking about here? Is this a, but I, I think in Paul's mind, he's just talking about uh, the veil with Moses. But
But in a sense, the veil ripping in two when Christ was crucified showed that that sacrificial system, that mosaic, because remember the, 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 the Holy of Holies was a place where the mercy seat was, where blood was sprinkled, where atonement was made, but it was so uh, such a separation between God and his people that only the high priest could go in and approach it one day a year. And so the, when, it, when the veil ripped, it was symbolic of the fact that Christ is our high priest and we can go directly to the Father and not have to access him through a priestly system. So in that sense, yeah, it had come to an end. Um, but the glory that's, that Paul is talking about in our passage is focused on Moses' glory when he received it, the glory from God. It was God's glory that shone on Moses' face. All right? So they're related, but I don't think this passage is speaking primarily about the veil in the temple. Yes? Yeah. I don't have all the answers of, of, of what exactly caused his face to shone. We know that, that he said, no man could look at me and live. We know that he allowed him to see the trail of his back. We know that, that Moses came down and didn't even know his face was shining. Um, and yet we know that they couldn't look at it. It was that bright. And so it, it, it represents God's glory, and it's a result of the glory of God. But the amazing thing is we read that and we think, wow, miracles, supernatural. I wish I could have some of that. I'd believe more, you know? I always wanted the leprosy one, like Moses sticking his hand in here, ah, leprosy, and, you know, <laughs> you know, like, <clears throat> hey, thanks for coming today. Let me, oh, I got my leprosy hand. Oh, you know, but um, I have something much better. I have his word. I have the new covenant. I look back. I can see clear. And it's more glorious, so much more glorious, that all of that glory associated with the old covenant pales in comparison. Yeah. All right, yes, question in the back. Yeah, so you want to know the context of why he's speaking with the Spirit of the Lord? Yeah, so there freedom from the condemnation that the Old Covenant brought. But I do want to point out this, and this is going to open a huge can of worms, and I don't really want to get into it, but the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament was very similar to his role in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit was involved in creation in the Old Testament. He uh, hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, he was involved in empowerment. He empowered certain people at certain time. There were four judges that the Spirit came upon. There were different craftsmen that he came upon. There were um, leaders like Moses and Daniel and Saul and Joshua. There were prophets who were empowered by the Spirit. Um, he helped with revelation, and people in the Old Testament were saved, and the Spirit had a role in their salvation. There were people who were saved looking forward. They were regenerated in the Old Testament, looking forward to uh, whatever God's way of salvation would be, and by believing in that faith was counted to them towards as righteousness. And we read some of that last week from from Genesis, and you can read it in Romans chapter 4. But there were, there were people because they were also born sinners. And if they were not saved, they could have never, for example, in Psalm 119, three times, I love thy law. How could a psalmist who knew that it was condemnation love it? Because he knew salvation. And there was salvation in the Old Testament. They looked forward to it. But we have a much more clear picture. And that salvation came through the new covenant. But that new covenant wasn't ratified until Christ died on the cross. 
and we look back and we are saved by faith in Christ's sufficient work. They looked forward and whatever God had revealed to them at their, in their era about his future plan of redemption, if they believed it, they were saved. And the Spirit was involved in that. The difference is every believer who repents today has the Spirit indwelling him. And rather being with him, the Spirit is in you so that when you're struggling with a sin as a believer today, it's different. You are saying, I don't want to be like this. I want to change. And so, for example, you go for counseling because you're struggling with a sin. You don't just try and cover over part of it. You go to the counselor and you say, all this is going on in my life. I want to put it all out on the table. I want to deal with all of it. Inwardly, I have a desire to mortify the sin because the Spirit of God is convicting me internally. It's not just this external law that's convicting me that the Spirit is using, but internally, He is not at home here. And that's a difference. That's a difference that we have. All right, let me pray. Father God, we do thank you. We thank you for this time together in your word. And wow, we've, we've really talked a lot about much more than a veil. And yet, we pray for those whose hearts are still hard towards you, that you would open their eyes, that you would remove the veil, that you would help them to see the glory of Christ and the fulfillment of Christ in all that the law stood for, and that they would glory and repent and trust in you for salvation. And for those of us who've already done that, may we be motivated to gaze upon the glory of Christ, to be looking at the face of Christ in your word so that as we understand more about him, we will be more motivated to become more like you. Sanctify us, we pray. We do not want to be stagnant. We do want not want to have a hardness, and we do not want to experience blindness ever again. So keep us from ritualism that leads to that or trusting in anything else besides you. Ritualism that it can even creep into the church here. May our worship today be free, be joyful, and bring honor and glory back to the name that deserves all praise and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.